Chapter Eight, Part Three, of the Mountains of California. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter Eight, The Forests, Part Three, Two-leaved or Tamarack Pine, Pinus contorta, Variety Mariana. This species forms the bulk of the alpine forests, extending along the range above the fir zone, up to a height of from 8,000 to 9,500 feet above the sea, growing in beautiful order upon moraines that are scarcely changed as yet by post-glacial weathering. Compared with the giants of the lower zones, this is a small tree, seldom attaining a height of a 100 feet. The largest specimen I ever measured was 90 feet in height, and a little over six in diameter, four feet from the ground. The average height of mature trees throughout the entire belt is probably not far from fifty or sixty feet, with a diameter of two feet. It is a well-proportioned, rather handsome little pine, with grayish-brown bark and crooked, much-divided branches, which cover the greater portion of the trunk, not so densely, however, as to prevent its being seen. The lower limbs curve downward, gradually take a horizontal position about halfway up the trunk, then aspire more and more toward the summit, thus forming a sharp conical top. The foliage is short and rigid, two leaves and a fascicle, arranged in comparatively long cylindrical tassels at the ends of the tough, upcurving branchlets. The cones are about two inches long, growing in stiff clusters among the needles, without making any striking effect, except while very young, when they are of a vivid crimson color, and the whole tree appears to be dotted with brilliant flowers. The sterile cones are still more showy, on account of their great abundance, often giving a reddish-yellow tinge to the whole mass of the foliage, and filling the air with pollen. No other pine on the range is so regularly planted as this one. Moraine forests sweep along the sides of the high rocky valleys for miles without interruption. Still, strictly speaking, they are not dense, for flecks of sunshine and flowers find their way into the darkest places, where the trees grow tallest and thickest. Tall, nutritious grasses are specially abundant beneath them, growing over all the ground, in sunshine and shade, over extensive areas like a farmer's crop, and serving as pasture for the multitude of sheep that are driven from the arid plains every summer, as soon as the snow is melted. The two-leaved pine, more than any other, is subject to destruction by fire. The thin bark is streaked and sprinkled with resin, as though it had been showered down upon it like rain, so that even the green trees catch fire readily, and during strong winds whole forests are destroyed, the flames leaping from tree to tree, forming one continuous belt of roaring fire that goes surging and racing onward above the bending woods, like the grass fires of a prairie. During the calm, dry season of Indian summer, the fire creeps quietly along the ground, feeding on the dry needles and burrs. Then, arriving at the foot of a tree, the resiny bark is ignited, and the heated air ascends in a powerful current, increasing in velocity, and drawing the flames swiftly upward. Then the leaves catch fire, and an immense column of flame, beautifully spired on the edges, and tinted a rose-purple hue, rushes aloft thirty or forty feet above the top of the tree, forming a grand spectacle, especially on a dark night. It lasts, however, only a few seconds, 
vanishing with magical rapidity, to be succeeded by others along the fire-line at irregular intervals for weeks at a time, tree after tree, flashing and darkening, leaving the trunks and branches hardly scarred. The heat, however, is sufficient to kill the trees, and in a few years the bark shrivels and falls off. Belts miles in extent are thus killed, and left standing with the branches on, peeled and rigid, appearing grey in the distance like misty clouds. Later the branches drop off, leaving a forest of bleached spars. At length the roots decay, and the forlorn trunks are blown down during some storm, and piled one upon another, encumbering the ground until they are consumed by the next fire, and leave it ready for a fresh crop. The endurance of the species is shown by its wandering occasionally out over the lava plains with the yellow pine, and climbing moraineless mountainsides with the dwarf pine clinging to any chance support in rifts and crevices of storm-beaten rocks, always, however, showing the effects of such hardships in every feature. Down in sheltered lake hollows on beds of rich alluvium, it varies so far from the common form as frequently to be taken for a distinct species. Here it grows in dense sods, like grasses, from forty to eighty feet high, bending altogether to the breeze and whirling in eddying gusts more lightly than any other tree in the woods. I have frequently found specimens fifty feet high, less than five inches in diameter. Being thus slender, and at the same time well clad with leafy boughs, it is oftentimes bent to the ground when laden with soft snow, forming beautiful arches in endless variety, some of which last until the melting of the snow in spring. Mountain Pine Pinus Monticola. The mountain pine is king of the alpine woods, brave, hardy, and long-lived, towering grandly above its companions, and becoming stronger and more imposing just where other species begin to crouch and disappear. At its best, it is usually about ninety feet high and five or six in diameter, though a specimen is often met considerably larger than this. The trunk is as massive and as suggestive of enduring strength as that of an oak. About two-thirds of the trunk is commonly free of limbs, but close, fringy tufts of sprays occur all the way down, like those which adorn the colossal shafts of sequoia. The bark is deep reddish-brown upon trees that occupy exposed situations near its upper limit, and furrowed rather deeply, the main furrows running nearly parallel with each other, and connected by conspicuous cross-furrows, which, with one exception, are, as far as I have noticed, peculiar to this species. The cones are from four to eight inches long, slender, cylindrical, and somewhat curved, resembling those of the common white pine of the Atlantic coast. They grow in clusters of about from three to six or seven, becoming pendulous as they increase in weight, chiefly by the bending of the branches. This species is nearly related to the sugar pine, and, though not half so tall, it constantly suggests its noble relative in the way that it extends its long arms and in general habit. The mountain pine is first met on the upper margin of the fir zone, growing singly in a subdued, inconspicuous form, in what appear as chance situations, without making much impression on the general forest. Continuing up through the two-leaved pines in the same scattered growth, it begins to show its character, and at an elevation of about 10,000 feet attains its noblest development near the middle of the range, tossing its tough arms in the frosty air, welcoming storms and feeding on them, and reaching the grand old age of a thousand years. 
Juniper, or red cedar, Juniperus occidentalis. The juniper is preeminently a rock tree, occupying the baldest domes and pavements, where there is scarcely a handful of soil, at a height of from 7,000 to 9,500 feet. In such situations, the trunk is frequently over 8 feet in diameter, and not much more in height. The top is almost always dead in old trees, and great stubborn limbs push out horizontally that are mostly broken and bare at the ends, but densely covered and embedded here and there with bossy mounds of gray foliage. Some are mere weathered stumps, as broad as long, decorated with a few leafy sprays, reminding one of the crumbling towers of some ancient castle scantily draped with ivy. Only upon the headwaters of the Carson have I found this species established on good moraine soil. Here it flourishes with the silver and two-leaved pines, in great beauty and luxuriance, attaining a height of from forty to sixty feet, and manifesting but little of that rocky angularity so characteristic a feature throughout the greater portion of its range. Two of the largest, growing at the head of Hope Valley, measured twenty-nine feet three inches and twenty-five feet six inches in circumference, respectively, four feet from the ground. The bark is of a bright cinnamon color, and in thrifty trees beautifully braided and reticulated, flaking off in thin, lustrous ribbons that are sometimes used by Indians for tent matting. Its fine color and odd picturesqueness always catch an artist's eye, but to me the juniper seems a singularly dull and taciturn tree, never speaking to one's heart. I have spent many a day and night in its company, in all kinds of weather, and have ever found it silent, cold, and rigid, like a column of ice. Its broad stumpiness, of course, precludes all possibility of waving, or even shaking, but it is not this rocky steadfastness that constitutes its silence. In calm Sundays the sugar-pine preaches the grandeur of the mountains like an apostle without moving a leaf. On level rocks it dies standing, and wastes insensibly out of existence like granite, the wind exerting about as little control over it alive or dead as it does over a glacier boulder. Some are undoubtedly over two thousand years old. All the trees of the alpine woods suffer, more or less, from avalanches, the two-leaved pine most of all. Gaps two or three hundred yards wide, extending from the upper limit of the tree line to the bottoms of valleys and lake basins, are of common occurrence in all the upper forests, resembling the clearings of settlers in the old backwoods. Scarcely a tree is spared, even the soil is scraped away, when the thousands of uprooted pines and spruces are piled upon one another heads downward, and tucked snugly in along the sides of the clearing in two windrows like lateral moraines. The pines lie with branches wilted and drooping like weeds. Not so the burly junipers. After braving in silence the storms of perhaps a dozen or twenty centuries, they seem in this their last calamity to become somewhat communicative, making sign of a very unwilling acceptance of their fate, holding themselves well up from the ground on knees and elbows, seemingly ill at ease and anxious, like stubborn wrestlers to rise again. Hemlock Spruce, Tsuga Patoniana the hemlock spruce is the most singularly beautiful of all the California coniferae. So slender is its axis at the top that it bends over and droops like the stalk of a nodding lily. The branches droop also, and divide into innumerable slender waving sprays, 
which are arranged in a varied, eloquent harmony that is wholly indescribable. Its cones are purple and hang free in the form of little tassels two inches long from all the sprays from top to bottom. Though exquisitely delicate and feminine in expression, it grows best where the snow lies deepest, far up in the region of storms, at an elevation of from 9,000 to 9,500 feet, on frosty northern slopes. But it is capable of growing considerably higher, say 10,500 feet. The tallest specimens, growing in sheltered hollows somewhat beneath the heaviest wind currents, are from 80 to 100 feet high, and from 2 to 4 feet in diameter. The very largest specimen I ever found was 19 feet 7 inches in circumference, 4 feet from the ground, growing on the edge of Lake Hollow, at an elevation of 9,250 feet above the level of the sea. At the age of 20 or 30 years, it becomes fruitful, and hangs its beautiful purple cones at the ends of the slender sprays, where they swing free in the breeze, and contrast beautifully with the cool green foliage. They are translucent when young, and their beauty is delicious. After they are fully ripe, they spread their shell-like scales and allow the brown-winged seeds to fly in the mellow air, while the empty cones remain to beautify the tree until the coming of a fresh crop. The staminate cones of all the coniferae are beautiful, growing in bright clusters, yellow and rose and crimson. Those of the hemlock spruce are the most beautiful of all, forming little conelets of blue flowers, each on a slender stem. Under all conditions, sheltered or storm-beaten, well-fed or ill-fed, this tree is singularly graceful in habit. Even at its highest limit upon exposed ridge-tops, though compelled to crouch in dense thickets, huddled close together, as if for mutual protection, it still manages to throw out its sprays in irrepressible loveliness, while on well-ground moraine soil it develops a perfectly tropical luxuriance of foliage and fruit, and is the very loveliest tree in the forest, poised in thin white sunshine, clad with branches from head to foot, yet not in the faintest degree heavy or bunchy. It towers in unassuming majesty, drooping as if unaffected with the aspiring tendencies of its race, loving the ground while transparently conscious of heaven, and joyously receptive of its blessings, reaching out its branches like sensitive tentacles, feeling the light and reveling in it. No other of our alpine conifers so finely veils its strength. Its delicate branches yield to the mountain's gentlest breath. Yet is it strong to meet the wildest onsets of the gale, strong not in resistance, but compliance, bowing snow-laden to the ground, gracefully accepting burial month after month in the darkness beneath the heavy mantle of winter. When the first soft snow begins to fall, the flakes lodge in the leaves, weighing down the branches against the trunk. Then the axis bends yet lower and lower, until the slender top touches the ground, thus forming a fine ornamental arch. The snow still falls lavishly, and the whole tree is at length buried, to sleep and rest in its beautiful grave as though dead. Entire groves of young trees, from ten to forty feet high, are thus buried every winter like slender grasses. But, like the violets and daisies, which the heaviest snows crush not, they are safe. It is as though this were only nature's method of putting her darlings to sleep, instead of leaving them exposed to the biting storms of winter. Thus warmly wrapped they await the summer resurrection. 
the snow becomes soft in the sunshine and freezes at night, making the mass hard and compact, like ice, so that during the months of April and May you can ride a horse over the prostrate groves without catching sight of a single leaf. At length the downpouring sunshine sets them free. First the elastic tops of the arches begin to appear, then one branch after another, each springing loose with a gentle rustling sound, and at length the whole tree, with the assistance of the winds, gradually unbends and rises, and settles back into its place in the warm air, as dry and feathery and fresh as young ferns just out of the coil. Some of the finest groves I have yet found are on the southern slopes of Lassen's Butte. There are also many charming companies on the headwaters of the Tuolumne, Merced, and San Joaquin, and, in general, the species is so far from being rare that you can scarcely fail to find groves of considerable extent in crossing the range, choose what pass you may. The mountain pine grows beside it, and more frequently the two-leaved species, but there are many beautiful groups numbering a thousand individuals or more without a single intruder. I wish I had space to write more of the surpassing beauty of this favorite spruce. Every tree lover is sure to regard it with special admiration, Apathetic mountaineers, even, seeking only game or gold, stop to gaze on first meeting it, and mutter to themselves, That's a mighty pretty tree, some of them adding, Damned pretty. In autumn, when its cones are ripe, the little striped tamias and the Douglas squirrel and the Clark crow make a happy stir in its groves. The deer love to lie down beneath its spreading branches. Bright streams from the snow that is always near ripple through its groves and Bryanthus spreads precious carpets in its shade. But the best words only hint its charms. Come to the mountains and see. Dwarf Pine Pinus albicollis This species forms the extreme edge of the timberline throughout nearly the whole extent of the range on both flanks. It is first met growing in company with Pinus contorta variation muriana on the upper margin of the belt, as an erect tree from fifteen to thirty feet high and from one to two feet in thickness. Thence it goes straggling up the flanks of the summit peaks, upon moraines or crumbling ledges, wherever it can obtain a foothold, to an elevation of from ten thousand to twelve thousand feet, where it dwarfs to a mass of crumpled, prostrate branches, covered with slender, upright shoots, each tipped with a short, close-packed tassel of leaves. The bark is smooth and purplish, in some places almost white. The fertile cones grow in rigid clusters upon the upper branches, dark chocolate in color when young, and bear beautiful pearly seeds about the size of peas, most of which are eaten by two species of tamias and the notable Clark crow. The staminate cones occur in clusters about an inch wide down among the leaves, and as they are colored bright rose purple, they give rise to a lively, flowery appearance, little looked for in such a tree. Pines are commonly regarded as sky-loving trees that must necessarily aspire or die. This species forms a marked exception, creeping lowly in compliance with the most rigorous demands of climate, yet enduring bravely to a more advanced age than many of its lofty relatives in the sunlands below. Seen from a distance, it would never be taken for a tree of any kind. Yonder, for example, is Cathedral Peak, some three miles away, with a scattered growth of this pine creeping like mosses over the roof and around the beveled edges of the north gable, 
nowhere giving any hint of an ascending axis. When approached quite near, it still appears matted and heathy, and is so low that one experiences no great difficulty in walking over the top of it. Yet it is seldom absolutely prostrate, at its lowest usually attaining a height of three or four feet, with a main trunk and branches outspread and intertangled above it, as if in ascending they had been checked by a ceiling against which they had grown and been compelled to spread horizontally. The winter snow is indeed such a ceiling, lasting half the year, while the pressed, shorn surface is made yet smoother by violent winds, armed with cutting sand grains that beat down any shoot that offers to rise much above the general level, and carve the dead trunks and branches in beautiful patterns. During stormy nights I have often camped snugly beneath the interlacing arches of this little pine. The needles, which have accumulated for centuries, make fine beds, a fact well known to other mountaineers, such as deer and wild sheep, who paw out oval hollows and lie beneath the larger trees in safe and comfortable concealment. The longevity of this lowly dwarf is far greater than would be guessed. Here, for example, is a specimen, growing at an elevation of 10,700 feet, which seems as though it might be plucked up by the roots, for it is only three and a half inches in diameter, and its topmost tassel is hardly three feet above the ground. Cutting it half through and counting the annual rings with the aid of a lens, we find its age to be no less than 255 years. Here is another telling specimen about the same height, 426 years old, whose trunk is only six inches in diameter, and one of its supple branchlets, hardly an eighth of an inch in diameter inside the bark, is seventy-five years old, and so filled with oily balsam, and so well seasoned by storms, that we may tie it in knots like a whipcord. White Pine Pinus flexilis This species is widely distributed throughout the Rocky Mountains, and over all the higher of the many ranges of the Great Basin, between the Washuts Mountains and the Sierra, where it is known as white pine. In the Sierra it is sparsely scattered along the eastern flank, from Bloody Canyon southward nearly to the extremity of the range, opposite the village of Lone Pine, nowhere forming any appreciable portion of the general forest. From its peculiar position, in loose, straggling parties, it seems to have been derived from the basin ranges to the eastward, where it is abundant. It is a larger tree than the dwarf pine. At an elevation of about 9,000 feet above the sea, it often attains a height of 40 or 50 feet, and a diameter of from 3 to 5 feet. The cones open freely when ripe, and are twice as large as those of the albacollis, and the foliage and branches are more open, having a tendency to sweep out in free, wild curves, like those of the mountain pine, to which it is closely allied. It is seldom found lower than 9,000 feet above sea level, but from this elevation it pushes upward over the roughest ledges to the extreme limit of tree growth, where, in its dwarfed, storm-crushed condition, it is more like the whitebark species. Throughout Utah and Nevada it is one of the principal timber trees, great quantities being cut every year for the mines. The famous White Pine Mining District, White Pine City, and the White Pine Mountains have derived their names from it. Needle Pine, Pinus aristata. This species is restricted in the Sierra to the southern portion of the range, about the headwaters of Kings and Kern Rivers, where it forms extensive forests, and in some places accompanies the dwarf pine to the extreme limit of tree growth. 
It is first met at an elevation of between 9,000 and 10,000 feet, and runs up to 11,000 without seeming to suffer greatly from the climate or the leanness of the soil. It is a much finer tree than the dwarf pine. Instead of growing in clumps and low heathy mats, it manages in some way to maintain an erect position, and usually stands single. Wherever the young trees are at all sheltered, they grow up straight and arrowy, with delicate tapered bole, and ascending branches terminated with glossy, bottle-brush tassels. At middle age, certain limbs are specialized and pushed far out for the bearing of cones, after the manner of the sugar-pine. And in old age, these branches droop and cast about in every direction, giving rise to very picturesque effects. The trunk becomes deep brown and rough, like that of the mountain-pine, while the young cones are of a strange, dull, blackish-blue color, clustered on the upper branches. When ripe, they are from three to four inches long, yellowish-brown, resembling in every way those of the mountain-pine. Excepting the sugar-pine, no tree on the mountains is so capable of individual expression, while in grace of form and movement it constantly reminds one of the hemlock spruce. The largest specimen I measured was a little over five feet in diameter and ninety feet in height, but this is more than twice the ordinary size. This species is common throughout the Rocky Mountains and most of the short ranges of the Great Basin, where it is called the foxtail pine, from its long, dense leaf tassels. On the Hot Creek, White Pine, and Golden Gate ranges it is quite abundant. About a foot or eighteen inches of the ends of the branches is densely packed with stiff, outstanding needles, which radiate like an electric fox or squirrel's tail. The needles have a glossy polish, and the sunshine sifting through them makes them burn with silvery luster, while their number and elastic temper tell delightfully in the winds. This tree is here still more original and picturesque than in the Sierra, far surpassing not only its companion conifers in this respect, but also the most noted of the lowland oaks. Some stand firmly erect, feathered with radiant tassels down to the ground, forming slender, tapering towers of shining verdure. Others, with two or three specialized branches pushed out at right angles to the trunk and densely clad with tasseled sprays, take the form of beautiful ornamental crosses. Again, in the same woods, you find trees that are made up of several boles united near the ground, spreading at the sides in a plane parallel to the axis of the mountain, with the elegant tassels hung in charming order between them, making a harp held against the main wind lines, where they are most effective in playing the grand storm harmonies. And besides these, there are many variable arching forms, alone or in groups, with innumerable tassels drooping beneath the arches or radiant above them, and many lowly giants of no particular form that have braved the storms of a thousand years. But whether old or young, sheltered or exposed to the wildest gales, this tree is ever found irrepressibly and extravagantly picturesque, and offers a richer and more varied series of forms to the artist than any other conifer I know of. Nut Pine Pinus monophylla The nut pine covers, or rather dots, the eastern flank of the Sierra, to which it is mostly restricted, in grayish bush-like patches, from the margin of the sage plains to an elevation of from 7,000 to 8,000 feet. A more contentedly fruitful and unaspiring conifer could not be conceived. 
all the species we have been sketching make departures more or less distant from the typical spire form, but none go so far as this. Without any apparent exigency of climate or soil, it remains near the ground, throwing out crooked, divergent branches like an orchard apple tree, and seldom pushes a single shoot higher than fifteen or twenty feet above the ground. The average thickness of the trunk is, perhaps, about ten or twelve inches. The leaves are mostly undivided, like round awls, instead of being separated, like those of other pines, into twos and threes and fives. The cones are green while growing, and are usually found over all the tree, forming quite a marked feature as seen against the bluish-gray foliage. They are quite small, only about two inches in length, and give no promise of edible nuts, but when we come to open them, we find that about half the entire bulk of the cone is made up of sweet, nutritious seeds, the kernels of which are nearly as large as those of hazelnuts. This is undoubtedly the most important food tree on the Sierra, and furnishes the Mono, Carson, and Walker River Indians with more and better nuts than all the other species taken together. It is the Indian's own tree, and many a white man have they killed for cutting it down. In its development, nature seems to have aimed at the formation of as great a fruit-bearing surface as possible. Being so low and accessible, the cones are readily beaten off with poles, and the nuts procured by roasting them until the scales open. In bountiful seasons, a single Indian will gather thirty or forty bushels of them, a fine squirrelish employment. Of all the conifers along the eastern base of the Sierra, and on all the many mountain groups and short ranges of the Great Basin, this foodful little pine is the commonest tree, and the most important. Nearly every mountain is planted with it to a height of from 8,000 to 9,000 feet above the sea. Some are covered from base to summit by this one species, with only a sparse growth of juniper on the lower slopes to break the continuity of its curious woods, which, though dark-looking at a distance, are almost shadeless, and have none of the damp, leafy glens and hollows so characteristic of other pine woods. Tens of thousands of acres occur in continuous belts. Indeed, viewed comprehensively, the entire basin seems to be pretty evenly divided into level plains dotted with sage bushes and mountain chains covered with nut pines. No slope is too rough, none too dry, for these bountiful orchards of the red man. The value of this species to Nevada is not easily overestimated. It furnishes charcoal and timber for the mines, and with the juniper supplies the ranches with fuel and rough fencing. In fruitful seasons the nut crop is perhaps greater than the California wheat crop, which exerts so much influence throughout the food markets of the world. When the crop is ripe, the Indians make ready. The long beating poles, bags, baskets, mats, and sacks are collected. The women out at service among the settlers, washing or drudging, assemble at the family huts. The men leave their ranch work, old and young, all are mounted on ponies and start in great glee to the nutlands, forming curiously picturesque cavalcades. Flaming scarfs and calico skirts stream loosely over the knotty ponies, two squaws usually astride of each, with baby midgets bandaged in baskets slung on their backs or balanced on the saddle-bow, while nut-baskets and water-jars project from each side, and the long beating poles make angles in every direction. Arriving at some well-known central point where grass and water are found, the squaws with baskets, the men with poles, ascend the ridges to the laden trees, followed by the children. Then the beating begins right merrily. The birds fly in every direction, rolling down the slopes, 
lodging here and there against rocks and sage-bushes, chased and gathered by the women and children with fine natural gladness. Smoke columns speedily mark the joyful scene of their labors, as the roasting fires are kindled, and at night, assembled in gay circles, garrulous as jays, they begin the first nut-feast of the season. The nuts are about half an inch long, and a quarter of an inch in diameter, pointed at the top, round at the base, light brown in general color, and, like many other pine seeds, handsomely dotted with purple, like bird's eggs. The shells are thin, and may be crushed between the thumb and finger. The kernels are white, becoming brown by roasting, and are sweet to every palate, being eaten by birds, squirrels, dogs, horses, and men. Perhaps less than one bushel in a thousand of the whole crop is ever gathered. Still, besides supplying their own wants, in times of plenty, the Indians bring large quantities to market. Then they are eaten around nearly every fireside in the state, and are even fed to horses occasionally instead of barley. Of other trees growing on the Sierra, but forming a very small part of the general forest, we may briefly notice the following. Chemiocyparis lawsoniana is a magnificent tree in the coast ranges, but small in the Sierra. It is found only well to the northward along the banks of cool streams on the upper Sacramento toward Mount Shasta. Only a few trees of this species, as far as I have seen, have as yet gained a place in the Sierra woods. It has evidently been derived from the coast range by way of the tangle of connecting mountains at the head of the Sacramento Valley. In shady dells and on cool stream banks of the northern Sierra, we also find the yew, Taxus brevifolia. The interesting nutmeg tree, Toria californica, is sparsely distributed along the western flank of the range, at an elevation of about 4,000 feet, mostly in gulches and canyons. It is a small, prickly-leaved, glossy evergreen, like a conifer, from 20 to 50 feet high and 1 to 2 feet in diameter. The fruit resembles a green gauge plum, and contains one seed, about the size of an acorn, and like a nutmeg, hence the common name. The wood is fine-grained and of a beautiful creamy yellow color like box, sweet-scented when dry, though the green leaves emit a disagreeable odor. Betula occidentalis, the only birch, is a small, slender tree restricted to the eastern flank of the range along stream sides below the pine belt, especially in Owens Valley. Alder, maple, and nuttles flowering dogwood make beautiful bowers over swift, cool streams at an elevation of from 3,000 to 5,000 feet, mixed more or less with willows and cottonwood, and above these, in lake basins, the aspen forms fine ornamental groves and lets its light shine gloriously in autumn months. The chestnut oak, Quercus densiflora, seems to have come from the coast range around the head of the Sacramento Valley, like the Chamiosoparis, but as it extends southward along the lower edge of the main pine belt, it grows smaller until it finally dwarfs to a mere chaparral bush. In the coast mountains, it is a fine, tall, rather slender tree, about from sixty to seventy feet high, growing with the grand Sequoia sempervirens, or redwood. But unfortunately, it is too good to live, and is now being rapidly destroyed for tan bark. Beside the common Douglas oak and the grand Quercus wislazini of the foothills, and several small ones that make dense growths of chaparral, there are two mountain oaks that grow with the pines up to an elevation of about 5,000 feet above the sea, and greatly enhance the beauty of the Yosemite parks. These are the mountain live oak and the Kellogg oak, 
named in honor of the admirable botanical pioneer of California. Kellogg's oak, Quercus kelloggii, is a firm, bright, beautiful tree, reaching a height of sixty feet, four to seven feet in diameter, with wide-spreading branches, and growing at an elevation of from three thousand to five thousand feet, in sunny valleys and flats among the evergreens, and higher in a dwarf state. In the cliff-bound parks about four thousand feet above the sea, it is so abundant and effective, it may fairly be called the Yosemite oak. The leaves make beautiful masses of purple in the spring, and yellow in ripe autumn, while its acorns are eagerly gathered by Indians, squirrels, and woodpeckers. The mountain live oak, Q. chrysolepis, is a tough, rugged mountaineer of a tree, growing bravely and attaining noble dimensions on the roughest earthquake taluses in deep canyons and Yosemite valleys. The trunk is usually short, dividing near the ground into great, wide-spreading limbs, and these again into a multitude of slender sprays, many of them cord-like and drooping to the ground, like those of the great white oak of the lowlands, Q. lobata. The top of the tree, where there is plenty of space, is broad and bossy, with a dense covering of shining leaves, making beautiful canopies. The complicated system of gray, interlacing, arching branches, as seen from beneath, being exceedingly rich and picturesque. No other tree that I know dwarfs so regularly and completely as this, under changes of climate due to changes in elevation. At the foot of a canyon, four thousand feet above the sea, you may find magnificent specimens of this oak, fifty feet high, with craggy, bulging trunks, five to seven feet in diameter, and at the head of the canyon, two thousand five hundred feet higher, a dense, soft, low, shrubby growth of the same species, while all the way up the canyon, between these extremes of size and habit, a perfect gradation may be traced. The largest I have seen was fifty feet high, eight feet in diameter, and about seventy-five feet in spread. The trunk was all knots and buttresses, gray like granite, and about as angular and irregular as the boulders on which it was growing, a type of steadfast, unwedgeable strength. End of Part 3 of Chapter 8 End of Chapter 8